Welcome, listeners, to another edition of the Jacobs Podcast. Joining me again is Jordan Shopov, founder of Wig Capital. Jordan, welcome back. G'day, Sean. Thanks for having me again. Excellent. And today we'll be talking about Bitcoin. It's a topic I don't know a great deal about, or Bitcoin and blockchain, but I promise we'll step through it slowly and probably for my sake as well as the listeners too. Um, just a note to listeners, actually, I am recording this for the first time at my girlfriend's house. She is at work and I've put her pet budgie or bird in the laundry temporarily, um, suspending any background noise uh, in the aid of acoustics. So don't worry, I've actually got a consent to do this. I didn't act unilaterally. Um, so but Jordan, I presume you're in your high-tech sound studio. Do you have any avian or feline friends around? Is the neighbor's cat watching you record as it did last time? Yeah, no, let's let's put it this way. That that cat won't be coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, like what happened to the cat that used to live around here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it's all right, listeners. No no animals being harmed in the making of this podcast. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm recording from my, my home office, so we're we're safe and sound. Excellent. Now just to feedback, um, I have had a bit of feedback. I know with the EPS and the EPS that I did started out in episode one and I tried to curtail them for two. They do emerge. They have come back a little bit and I've been warned about it again by a couple of listeners. So I will endeavour to uh, stop saying yep, yep, especially in the last few interviews I've done. It's crept back in and I promise to uh, keep working on it. Do you have any feedback yourself, Jordan, that you've received from listeners? Yeah, that I'm speaking too fast again. And to be honest, it's funny after after we discussed it on the second episode, you do bad habits just they just creep back. So I'm going to work on mm. that. The other one though, I had uh, a close friend um, that said she listened to a couple episodes, and um, I asked how she found them, and she said, "Yeah, yeah, they're, they're no, they're good." I was like, "Oh, is there any anything we could improve improve on?" And then she looked at me blankly and said, uh, "Make it more interesting." <laughs> so. I hope she wow. was joking. <laughs> but, uh, Gosh, no. well, Bitcoin, well, look, on Bitcoin, I think we've certainly um, captured her interest. <laughs> look, look, let's put her down to an outlier because all the other feedback we've got, was, I've, I've gotten, has been pretty good. So I, I think a bit oh. of tongue-in-cheek on that one. Oh, good to hear. No, good, good. But look, on, a, on just a bit of serious feedback, I got the last episode you and I did together, Jordan, we talked about building wealth in your 20s. That was the topic. And... A feedback I got from one listener, John K. I presume is John Karanis, but I'm not entirely sure. But um, he was just a bit surprised that we didn't talk about super or superannuation. And look, I personally, I was a sort of a bit aghast because I think it's I'm a big believer in super. I think it's really important. There's different sort of spectrums of I think agreement on how it should be done, the approach to it. But I just think it's a good idea in general about you know it helps automate savings, it definitely adds to compound interest in, in a pre-tax way. And I think it removes me personally from getting my mitts on it in the sense that it can be, well, it is mandatory. Um, and then I just think, you know, it was one of the things that I saw about this, about sort of seven, actually, you know, well, it's not in my, my mid-20s, pardon me. And I remember reading this thing about, you know, if you think about a round of drinks, it's, you know, $70 uh, with your friends on a Friday or Saturday night. And, you know, you, that's one hour, two hours of sort of fun that you can get out of some Jaeger bombs, I think, or maybe a bit more. But if you put that into a super calculator, and there's so many that you can do online, um, but, you know, it gets you about 2K plus when you retire. So I think that the, just the concept of super is great and the way that you can, you know, with pre-tax, you can contribute, contribute, and then 
you know, you think about the interest and what we really talked about, all the things we agreed on last time was, um, yeah, just that that automation, putting your money away, looking at, at compound and then doing something productive with it. And super is just a great mechanism that a lot of people are aware of that we know that, you know, that's out there that they can that they can use. Do you agree, Jordan? You've got a bit of a different take on super. Yeah, I, I, we kind of steered away from uh, super in the in that last one because it's a can of worms in itself. Because there's, yeah. I mean, obviously, like you're saying, the the, the fundamental um, principles of compound interest and saving and um, you know delayed gratification they're all they're all still the same. But it throws up a whole lot of uh, extra policy questions and um, extra subtleties like. For for me, I, I I'm in, in two minds a bit about super just because I don't like the idea of forced savings. It offends my libertarian sensibilities a bit. So there's a lot of policy issues wrapped up with it. But just in terms of um, a savings vehicle, there's also the um, like the active versus passive side of things, where whether you actually use a, a, a super fund manager that tries to beat the market or one that um, gives you an indexing option, and then there's also a lot of the extra tax a- issues around, which make super a bit of a minefield, to be honest. Like whether or not you do a self-managed super fund, at what size, at what size that gets, um, that becomes uh, worthwhile. So, yeah, you could we could probably do a, a separate episode on on just on super, really. Um, and I, but for the for the time being, yeah. I don't know if yeah, it's probably better to speak to an accountant, to be honest, when you're dealing with that stuff, just because of the tax implications around it. But um, yeah, like you said, sure. in, in in its base, super super does have the same underlying investment features at at play, which is saving and investing for for a later date. Yeah, definitely. Look, I agree. That's an you know something we can touch on further um, in a future episode, and definitely have to do a lot more, a bit of research. But yeah, look, I can certainly appreciate your libertarian impulses there. So, um, Jordan, just moving to the show proper. So. Moving to Bitcoin, um, your recent newsletter, you do a newsletter for Wig Capital and it touches on a number of areas. I must say it's a really good read. Um, it's very punchy and it, again, touches on Bitcoin to blockchain. Um, Peter Thiel, who is a billionaire or multi-multi-millionaire to cryptocurrency. And it's just really punchy, very well written, very insightful. And I thought we'd just sort of start there. But before we unsc- unscramble all those topics, why do you do a newsletter, Jordan, and will you continue to do one? Um, yes, yeah, so I talk a bit in uh, in this one about the the reasons why um, the why I think it's worthy doing something like this, and it's um, it's not so much about uh, you know self promotion and talking your book, so to speak. I, I've actually found writing to be a very valuable learning tool. Um, I mean, obviously we talked about reading in in our first episode and the benefits of that, but I find that if you really want to test your understanding of a subject, uh, you ha- you should try and write out. Um, your knowledge of it. And um, the, yeah, so when I've got a topic which I'm kind of grappling with myself, uh, I like to get my thoughts out. And I thought a newsletter was a good way to kind of um, clarify the, that thinking and really test my knowledge. And um, the first one I did was more of an introductory one. This is only my second one. And I've, I've realized that having a particular audience in mind, so I, I'm writing, I try to think of someone who's smart, but might be unfamiliar with the topic. And that kind of takes a lot of the formality and um, you know, uh, yeah, it makes it makes it less professorial. So it, it was a bit more, bit more informal, a bit more fun, and it was a good test of my knowledge of the area. And uh, yeah, I I hope uh, I'm glad you said you enjoyed it. Um, but where where this one actually came from was 
I might share the experience that led to it, which was um, I was my wife and I were traveling up to um, up to the Victorian Alps for a for a mate's birthday party, and um, we stopped in at this little this little pub about um, a couple hours out a couple hours out of Melbourne, and you know very you know small rural community, not many people around. It was about ten o'clock at night, and there's three or four guys at the bar, and you know, just just your regular Joes, and suddenly I could hear them talking Ethereum and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I was like, far out, we're in the middle of nowhere, and these guys are trading cryptos on their iPhone. It was like, yeah, that that was kind of a bit of a shock to the system where it's like this has definitely gone mainstream, and you know, you couldn't go to a for a, about six months there around the turn of turn of 2018, you couldn't go anywhere without someone mentioning Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So I thought. Um, wow. It would be a good, great, good pub, good pub chat too. Yeah, I think as well. And yeah, and we're not trying to be too topical here, but I thought it was a good opportunity to try and debunk some of the most popular fallacies and and things going around. And I think, like you know, you you, you start up by saying you know maybe we can learn a bit more about Bitcoin. I think my my ambition with the memo and the ambition here today might be to try and convince people that even the ones who think they know a lot about Bitcoin and blockchain don't really know as much as what they think. And even that's where I I stand as well. It's more understanding the big holes and, uh, and uncertainties about all this all this space at the moment. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point because we'll definitely get to that because I, you know, I certainly, I've tried to, again, like I mentioned in the intro, I don't know a great deal about it. I've done a bit of reading. I've certainly never published on it or anything like that and looked at a lot of YouTube videos and even, you know, the people who are very well versed in it find it very difficult to explain it to anyone. And I think a lot of the thinking is also... It's very new, like in terms of people thinking ledgers, that sort of thing, and and it's just it's a very new way of thinking. So it's hard to wrap your your head around. But I thought we'd just start with what's the difference between Bitcoin and blockchain, or blockchain and Bitcoin. I, I do get them mixed up sometimes, and I sort of struggle to um, to work out the difference. What's the difference there? Yeah, and that's I mean Bitcoin Bitcoin was essentially the first application of blockchain technology, and so the two were fused in a way, and that's why. Now it's it's only becoming clearer now that there are other applications of that underlying technology. So, um, blockchain is essentially a distributed ledger. It's a distributed database that everyone can update uh, simultaneously. So, to give a bit more context, uh, you know, ledgers in a traditional sense you might think of as like, uh, you know, a, a handwritten a handwritten book for you know your credit and debit statements, like in a in a in a business or any accounting firm. And that's how, you know, ledgers have always been a centralized, a centralized um, instrument. What uh, blockchain does is it takes a centralized tool and uh, push it out in a distributed manner so that everyone in a community holds a piece of the ledger and they're not reliant on any one intermediary to update it. So everyone updates it, everyone stores it, and everyone verifies it using a whole bunch of cryptographic um, incentives. And full disclosure, my... That my technical knowledge stops there. I'm not a software developer. I'm not a programmer, and I've tried reading some of the the more technical stuff, and it flies over my head. So, but in saying that, I still think it's possible to understand broadly what um, what's going on in an economic sense, and that's really what mm. I'm interested here. And I think the most important economic feature of it is that you've got a distributed um, you've got a distributed ledger. Um, and the sure. trust and trust is no longer placed in a, a centralized intermediary. It's spread across an entire community. Um, so that's yeah. that's the essence of blockchain. Comparing that with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is yeah, like I said, one application of that 
of that uh, distributed ledger. And every Bitcoin is essentially one piece of that ledger. And so um, there are new, there are new um, cryptocurrencies and new crypto coins which take uh, blockchain and do additional things to it. Well, but Bitcoin essentially is just a, yeah, one distributed ledger application. Okay. So, and just like, for example, I like that idea of the centralized ledger because I have heard, you know, sorry, not the concept, but an example of it I have heard previously is like if you purchase something, say, on eBay or you use PayPal, that's, for example, that you that is using a centralized ledger. Is that right? Like if you buy something online or go through PayPal, whereas if you go through like a blockchain, it's not you're not using a centralized ledger, you're using a decentralized ledger. Yeah, and like ledgers are one of those things that are so fundamental to everyday life that you kind of forget about them like they yeah they and touch. that's the, and that's the thing just on that Jordan it's like that's why I think it's really confronting to think about it like not having a centralized ledger it's like oh gosh it's got to go through you know something it's because that's how it's always been um to sort of funnel through a, like a formality like a ledger um yeah. and yeah sorry keep going I cut you off no no not at all um uh yeah just maybe a bit of history as well like the first most primitive form of ledgers was uh, like clay tablets mm. in mesopotamia where they you know tally up you yeah. know, bales of hay or wheat or whatever it was and so and then double entry bookkeeping um which came about in the 13th century in medieval italy that um presaged the development of like uh companies and you know joint stock corporations so like accounting and ledgers are, are really fundamental to everyday life like you know writing or mathematics but we kind of forget about it because they're so into the background and they're so um but they're still really fundamental so it also means that yes. when you start thinking about the applications it's pretty daunting because it's like far out this is a fundamental um rethinking of a very basic tool wow that's really interesting the history that i didn't realize but it just shows how ingrained it is spot on now just on blockchain itself so it sort of seems if bitcoins have been applied to it's the first type of the sort of first cab off the rank with blockchain, it can be applied to something else. So can blockchain, can like it be applied to anything else other than currency? Yeah, so some of the more recent projects, uh, what they've done is they've taken that distributed ledger and made it programmable. And by that, I mean like you can add certain instructions into the blockchain and that's what they, what they mean when people start talking about smart contracts you have a ledger which has got certain instructions in it and then upon a certain event, a transfer of value happens, ergo a smart contract. So these, that, that is, you know, that's the theoretical application of how it works, but in terms of real life practical applications at the moment, there's still you know, a lot of work in progress and um, they're, yeah, they're not, it's, not, it's not widespread. We're kind of like in the early days of the internet where everyone's got these broad ideas of how the internet's going to transform everything, but um, the actual applications haven't come about yet. Kind of like, kind of like self-driving cars, I guess, as well. Like, you know, everyone knows that, um, everyone talks about the technology being there, but it needs to get further advanced. You could say the same thing with the application of blockchain technology to other things, whether it be um, something like uh, a central stock exchange, rather than having the ASX clear settlements for your BHP shares. Um, theoretically, a blockchain would allow it to happen, um, you know, peer-to-peer. Or the same with like a, um, a land titles office at the moment. You know, if you want to buy or sell a house, you go through a conveyancer and they deal with the land title. You know, th those more complicated aspects, you need lawyers and everything. Um, theoretically, blockchain could allow a 
you know, you could use a distributed ledger to transform uh, property peer-to-peer. So those are the, some of the applications that are being theorized at the moment. And a lot of the, the new crypto coin projects are, are geared mm. around that. Whilst if, just to draw it back to, to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is kind mm. of like um, if you had Da Vinci draw, you know, the Mona Lisa and then say, okay, you know, I've, I've done this beautiful painting and I'm going to release 20 mon- 21 million prints over, its in- over the entire life of, you know, forever of this one painting. And that's kind of more what um, a Bitcoin is. It's more like a, a digital collectible with no actual functioning built into it. It's the, the ledger itself, which is the, um, the point of attraction, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, that's a good explanation. I sort of half get it like i said it's very difficult to get your head around especially for me but it's sort of i think and it just sort of seems with just blockchain it's going to depend on the cultural appetite and how much it's how receptive you know society is to it to just how obviously it's not just bitcoin but just other applications of blockchain so you mentioned a bit before jordan about the history of ledgers just with who actually started blockchain so a bit of history on that on Bitcoin, because uh, I think there's a bit of secrecy around who started it. Yeah, that's like the world's best kept secret. <laughs> so the yeah. it, it, a guy called Satoshi Nakamoto, who wrote a, a what's now known as the Bitcoin white paper. I think it was published in about 2009, just after the financial crisis. He, um, yeah, he essentially created the Bitcoin um, protocol, the software that runs that runs the whole that the yeah the very first blockchain technology. Um, so he was the creator, but no one really knows who it is. There's there's a whole bunch of different theories out there, whether it's a group of people, whether it was an individual person. Um, a lot of the very early people associated with Bitcoin, like the first people that actually transacted in Bitcoin, um, like one of them has passed away. And then other people, you know, you know, are no longer involved in the community. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of unknowns. There was actually an Australian guy. I don't know if you know this, Sean. There was an Australian guy a year or two ago who came out and said he was the founder of bitcoin his name's craig wright and um so there was this you know huge media furor about you know is this guy really it and there was a whole um there was a few reporters that went and met him and he showed you know certain things on his computer which were meant to identify that he held the very first um you know sets of bitcoin but then the guy ended up going into hiding because a lot of the people in the bitcoin community said no it's not him or his you know his proof's not good enough so there's still there's a still a whole bunch of controversy and then yeah the, so who knows who really knows there was one wow. point where there was there was a magazine that was that found a guy called Satoshi Nakamoto in like um, rural US and they went and they went and visited him it was this Japanese guy and he's just he had nothing to do with Bitcoin and then suddenly like all these computer crews were like on his front lawn and he's like what's going on <laughs> so, wow yeah there's there's a lot of unknowns, and I I, to be honest, though, I don't think it really matters in the end. It's you know, the it's more like what are we going to do with this technology rather than who who really created it. Um, yeah. They're sure that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever it is, holds a huge stack of Bitcoin and is I think a multi-billionaire by now. I think so, um, but in the long yeah. run, it doesn't it doesn't really make much difference. If, if but if people are interested in that um, that side of it, there's a great book called Digital Gold, which tracks the some of the earlier history of, of Bitcoin and its applications. And uh, I think a few people would have heard of the Silk Road, which was the, um, the online marketplace, the illicit marketplace for, you know, drugs and um, weapons and things. And um, that, that, that whole marketplace was built on Bitcoin. And there's, you know, some of the characters involved in that. It was, it's an amazing story. So, yeah, check that out if, if anyone's interested. Yeah, definitely. And 
the Nakamoto, that's very fascinating. I think it's just really interesting um, in terms of, yeah, just some of the secrecy around it. I just think it's very, yeah, again, very interesting. I think I think sort of... Go, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think some people have... Um, some people's theory is that the reason why this guy, whoever created it, or this guy or girl or group haven't come out admitting it is that some of the a lot of the reasons behind its formation was to do with the financial crisis and the dissatisfaction with government involvement in money and the the creation of a distributed distributed ledger kind of undermines a lot of the traditional roles of what government has seen to do like you know issuing currency is the biggest one so I think you know some people have theorised that maybe these people are worried that the the technological impact will be so transformational and the impact on governments will be so large that they don't, you know, they're scared for their lives, essentially. And this guy, mm. Craig Wright, he um, he was being investigated by ASIO um, uh, for, uh, well, they right. say for tax reasons, but who knows? So, yeah, it's really interesting. There's, a, you know, there's good luck trying to figure out what's actually going on, but there's a lot of conspiracy theories, which makes it pretty fun. <laughs> sure. And I think that's a good segue to the next question, because that sort of single point of legitimacy about who started it is... You know, when you don't have a centralised sort of authority or a, le a centralised ledger, everything's automated. I think one of the arguments that we have for regulation is to protect people. So you've got some sort of element of control in place. Is how's Bitcoin actually adjudicated? Um, you know, for example, is there an ombudsman or can you complain to someone if you feel, you, you know, if you hold Bitcoin and you feel you've been duped? So there is a, there is a Bitcoin foundation and um, I haven't been following it recently, but I know that some of the main people involved for a while were the some of the original people uh, involved back in the very early days in the in the sort of Bitcoin community when Satoshi Nakamoto was still popping up on blog forums and stuff. So they yeah there was there was like a, there's a core group of developers who were there to kind of steward the steward the software and you know provide updates and that's sort of the main. Um, the main forum for any grievances about how it's working. And there was a point, I think about a year ago, where there was a big debate in the Bitcoin community about the size of the blocks in the blockchain. And the reason there was a debate was the, the size, um, their storing capacity determined how many transactions you could pump through in, um, well, yeah, how many transactions you could pump through in each um, time increment, I think. Once again, that my technical knowledge here is, this is right on the border of it. So, um, but there was, yeah, there was that debate going on and there was one part of the community said, oh no, they shouldn't get any bigger. And there was others saying, no, it should, um, it should get bigger so it can get a broader adoption. And it ended up with two different software versions um, going along. It's kind of like, you know, if you get the latest version of the iOS software from Apple and you don't update whilst everyone else does, you've got two, two different softwares, uh, you know, two different operating systems in existence. That's kind of like what happened with Bitcoin. There's now Bitcoin Cash and the, and Bitcoin itself, because not everyone could agree on the latest software update. So that's that's kind of how uh, problems are, are resolved mm. in the community. It's a very democratic democratic process because there's no even though there's that foundation, there's there's no obligation on people to to follow what they say. It's it's purely um, bottom up. Yeah. Okay. Well, very interesting. And one of the things I touched on in the last episode, and we've definitely talked about it before, is just, I think, this that capacity to regulate, you know, look at Uber, for example, governments are just, whenever sort of any innovation pops up, it's sort of how do we grapple with this? And I think it's sort of, it's still, everyone's sort of still, especially governments still come into terms a little bit with, with Bitcoin and, and blockchain, just as many people are than 
cells, but do you think it can be regulated? Do you see Bitcoin being regulated? Like what options do governments have here? Is there anything or is it just um, simply um, good luck? Governments seem to find new ways of intervening and stuff, which you didn't think they could. So, oh, you know, there will be ways, but they might not be so clear at the moment. And I mean, some of the obvious ways are, uh, are the, um, the, you know, the points of interaction between Bitcoin and the, and the rest of the world, kind of like the exchanges or the, um, the Bitcoin wallets that people use. So those are sort of, uh, you know, one removed points, points of potential intervention from governments. It's kind of like how everyone said, you, you know, you can't really control the internet. Well, the Chinese government have found some pretty good ways to, you know, control internet usage. But then again, there's always ways to kind of, you know, whether it's um, through the dark web, through different browsers and things that people use. I don't, I don't fully understand the tools that they that are available. But I know that there are means for people to kind of move past um, government regulations. So yeah, there will there will be ways. But ultimately, the Bitcoin software itself is, you know, it's incorruptible and it's completely anonymous, and governments can't can't change that. Sure. So Bitcoin, as you mentioned before, Jordan's clearly a craze. So, you know, a lot of people, these guys in the pub that you came across in the middle of nowhere uh, mentioned it, um, where you've got lots of people I know, a lot of people talking about it online, you know, people leaping over themselves to get it. So you write in your very informative newsletter that it's what I call, so quote, what I call speculative value rather than economic value. Be sure to tell them it's not investing any sense of the word, they're speculating. So it's not something you see a lot of like real value in? Yeah, and this, this gets to the question of what's what's a productive asset and what's a non-productive asset. And I would describe Bitcoin as a non-productive asset. If you think of any, like if you buy BHP shares or you bought a farm or a suburban motel, that asset spins off a certain, or you'd hope, it spins off a certain amount of cash flow, whether, you know, it spins off um, revenue and, and profits, and that's, that's, a, that's a productive asset. And uh, in comparison, things like... Um, Things like Bitcoin or a gold bullion or a you know a, a collectible artwork, they they are non-productive assets which don't spin off any cash flow, and so they they both have value in a sense, but one's very different to the other. One's an economic value, one's a speculative value, and the speculative value um, is is almost kind of like a social bubble. There's no real reason for it. It's kind of like a, this weird phenomenon where everyone finds something aesthetically pleasing or you know, exotic, so they they ascribe a certain worth to it and they're willing to pay a lot of money. But if, in an invest, that's to me, that's not investing. Investing is about understanding the true value, the true economic value of an asset, and then trying to buy it for less than what it's worth. That's that's what investing is. And so, anything that's a non-productive asset, you're you're not investing because you can't you can't figure out the value. You can't figure out the true economic worth of it. So that that's not to say that Bitcoin is is worth nothing. Clearly, people think it's worth something, and so it will have that speculative value. But it just means that you can't treat it as a as a proper investment, like you would a, a share or a bond or a piece of real estate. Mm. It's um, it's yeah, it, it's a it's a speculative it's a speculative bet. So yeah, that's sure. that's the most that's the most important distinction. Yep, and that's a really good distinction to make. You also write in the newsletter that Bill Gates or Bill Gates's famous quote that we quote we always overestimate the change that will occur in the next two years and underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10, that end quote. And that, just like, I mean, this is you writing, just like the tech room, savvy programmers are floating crypto coins without a coherent value proposition. And, you know, for example, Peter Thiel speaks about somebody new, you mentioned this in the newsletter, planning an IPO, so initial public 
offering a company stock from his living room before he'd even incorporated a company, which is flabbergasting. So it seems that Bitcoin is something that's a craze and doesn't really have, well, has speculative value, but not any real tangible productive underlying bread and butter value. Is that the case? Um, yeah, I think it's really instructive to look at financial history and, and try and draw draw analogies and parallels. Obviously, history is not going to repeat perfectly, but as the famous adage goes, it, it does rhyme. So um, looking at what happened in the 90s tech boom, everyone was really super excited about in the internet and there was all sort of you know companies being started every day and like teal pointed out like as i point out in the memo teal said that there was people starting companies without a semblance of a business plan but people were willing to throw money at them because everyone was so geared up about the the prospects of what the internet will do and it did change everything everything's changed dramatically but the fact of the matter is finding those um those companies or those applications which uh, create value for shareholders um is is incredibly difficult and there's not going to be you know not everyone's going to make money so, like, you know, the tech boom and then the bust in 2000, um, a lot of the, the, the biggest corporate behemoths that, that benefited from the internet, like Google and Facebook, um, weren't, even, weren't even public yet. And, you know, then there's still ones today like Airbnb and Uber, which are private. So these people, the point of the Bill Gates quote is that things get ahead of, people get ahead of reality. They, I mean, the, the economic impact of blockchain may truly be transformational, but the ability for, for you or I or the average person to, to see the next Google, the next Twitter is, is very, very difficult. And not everyone's going to make money in it. And uh, how those little economic battles play out is, um, is, is, a, is a really hard game. So um, it's better to – it doesn't mean that there's not value there. I think there, there is certain value and there's – you know, we were talking before about the, some of the theoretical applications that, you know, I think there could be value there. But it's still, it's still very early on and very hard to, to pick winners. So – I would not be surprised if we look back in a couple of years and, and go far out the you know, people got way ahead of themselves, but then you come back in 20 years' time and go far out. We underestimated the change that would happen as a result. So it's, yeah, yes. buyers, be, buyers beware. That's what that's probably the, the main message. <laughs> sure. Caveat Amptor. Look, and um, so I presume you don't have, do you ever have a desire to purchase any or at all? Uh, no, that's, that, yeah, my point about the difference between investing and and gambling like the speculative value side of it so that puts me off mm. um mm. i i don't for me the most important thing with investing is to protect protect your downside to avoid losing capital and the way you do that is you buy something for less than what it's worth and if you you know in this case if you can't value it then you can't protect your downside so that that puts me off immediately i'm i am interested though in some of the newer applications and whether they do have a, a economic value but uh yeah i'm not anywhere near um, close to being comfortable with what that value might be or how to analyze it. And yeah, kind of like in the nineties, there was, you know, pets.com and stuff like that. You can see that there could be value, you know, using the internet in a corporate sense, just like you can see now there might be uh, value for companies to use blockchain or entire new value propositions built using blockchain, but it's just, it's too early for me to tell what that is. And so I'll just watch the space and see how it develops. Sure. Look at uh, in there. I really liked your point about, looking at financial history and, and, you know, getting ahead of reality. And I think, you know, looking at proper, you know, productive assets and more bread and butter things is something that cogs well into what we talked about and what I wish, or sorry, I think, uh, building wealth in your 20s in a previous episode. Um, so, Jordan, just on the newsletter itself, it's very, again, it's very informative. Where, where can listeners find a copy of it? 
Yeah, this good uh, shameless plug for my website, uh, wigcapital.com. It's uh, anyone can subscribe uh, via the website. And there's no, the, it's, it's more of a memo ra- format rather than a newsletter. Like I, I don't plan to issue gotcha. these. Sorry, I probably have been butchering the terminology. Apologies. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, yeah, so there's no, there's no planned formats, nothing like, you know, it's not once a month or once a quarter or anything. It's, um, it's mainly when I have something uh, that I'm trying to wrestle with or something that I think people would find interesting uh, that, that I'll, that I'll issue one. So it was six months between the last two. So yeah, it might be that or might be longer. Um, it'll, yeah, it completely depends on the situation. Sure. And just provokes what's, what's tweaking your interest at the time. That's my approach to, to writing publishing as well. Jordan, you recommended just to close out um, digital gold before. Is there any recommendations for further reading or can you get on YouTube, watch anything that you think is good in explaining a bit more um, about Bitcoin and about blockchain? Yeah, if people are interested in the more technical stuff, there's so much online, It's but it's almost overwhelming. So, you know, unless you've got a, a programming bent, uh, I'd probably steer clear of it. But the in terms of reading material, digital gold's great for the, the sort of the, the characters and the, the a more narrative history of blockchain and Bitcoin and, and what's going on. The uh, more in-depth analysis of kind of the potential applications and the economics of it, there's a, a great book called... Um, the Age of Cryptocurrency, which was written by a couple of guys from the Wall Street Journal. That, yeah, that, that goes more into the, the, the nuts and bolts of blockchain and, and thinking about the future. So that's, that's probably the best one if people are, are more interested about the long-term implications. Um, if people have got a more academic slant, I would say check out a website called Crypto Economics. Um, it's run by a few economists at RMIT in Melbourne. And they... Um, yeah, they've got a, a fair libertarian bent, but they're um, they've they've got a, a good grasp, I think, of the more economic forces at play. There's not many academics that are looking at this at this space, and they they've got a great um, they've got a great grasp of the economic history and and what's going on in, with blockchain in a ledger sense and and transaction costs and some of these more fundamental economic concepts. And um, yeah, so if anyone's got that more academic slant, check that out. And if anyone's interested in the more uh, the money side of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, um, there's an essay I, I wrote a, about a year or so ago. Um, it's called Common Money uh, on my website. Another shameless plug. Um, check no, check that encourage out. encourage it? It's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that kind of delves a bit more into what money is and what how blockchain fits into that. And um, yeah, it's a bit theoretical, a bit dry, but. Um, yeah, it's into the more wonkier aspects. I highly recommend it. <laughs> gotcha. Excellent. So uh, the newsletter is available at wigcapital.com. And um, look, Jordan, that's been really insightful. I think for me, it's sort of refined a lot of my um, thinking on it. And I've certainly got a lot to do to understand some of the technicalities of it, just get my head around just the concept of blockchain. Because again, like we touched on at the start, it's just such a different way of thinking about things that are just so ingrained um, just in terms of finance and the market and transactions and things like that, which have been around with us for, for so long as you alluded to. Um, but yeah, thanks for your time, Jordan. Really appreciate it as always. Thanks, Sean. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't feel um, despondent about that. Like I, I still feel like my knowledge, knowledge is really limited, but I think people who are, st- you know, coming at this area knew they should feel they shouldn't be too despondent and realize that even the people sitting there saying they understand what's going on I don't think they truly know what's going on so we're all we're all in this together <laughs>
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks again, Jordan. Appreciate your time and uh, look forward to our next discussion, um, a future discussion that we have on Super and then just having you back on the show again. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Jordan. Thank you, listeners. That wraps up the episode on Bitcoin, and I hope it hasn't been too confusing. Uh, Bitcoin's a uh, very confusing subject, and so is blockchain too. So I hope we've been able to clear some of the air. I think I'm some the wiser, but not entirely. If you wonder why I am talking in hushed tones, it's because my girlfriend's uh, budgie is now back in the living room, as I mentioned at the start of the show. And uh, I have to keep in hushed tones not to arouse the suspicion. So I uh, please implore you to get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au and uh, whatever medium you listen to the podcast on, please drop a rating in, uh, whether it's Apple Podcast or Stitcher or whatever medium you listen to. Um, I'd love to hear from you and I'd really love a rating. So please get in touch or otherwise and uh, happy listening and we look forward to welcoming you back Uh, Thanks again and until next time.